Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. I am especially, especially excited for this one because today we have Dr. Clay Jones with us, and he holds a doctorate of ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is a visiting scholar for the Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology. Formerly, Clay hosted Contend for Truth, a nationally syndicated call-in talk radio program where he debated professors, radio talk show hosts, cultists, religious leaders, and representatives from animal rights, abortion rights, gay rights, and atheist organizations. Clay was the CEO of Simon Greenleaf University, now Trinity Law School, and was the was on the pastoral staff of two churches. Clay is the chairman of the board of the University Apologetics Ministry, Ratio Christi, and is a contributing writer for the Christian Research Journal, specializing in issues related to why God allows evil. And that is what we're going to be talking about today on the Good Fight Radio Show. So we, with all of that, we want to welcome Dr. Clay Jones to the show. Well, thank you, Chad. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm I as I said, I, I'm really excited. And, and before the show, I was explaining to uh, Dr. Jones here how much uh, his work has meant, also not only to myself reading it, but also to a discipleship group that that I hold. And we even have a one of the guys in the group named Travis who's going to be teaching through your book, which is "Why Does God Allow Evil?" Compelling answers for life's toughest questions. And I think when it comes to this question, whether you're on the streets or in academia, it is one of the more common questions, but one of the things, as I had already mentioned to you, Dr. Jones, that I loved about your answer was that it was biblical. It was common sense. And I just want to know, what is it that led you to write this book? Well, you know, uh, it started back, actually, in about, to go way back, 1981 or two, I don't remember which, uh, I was reading a book, and I started the book talked of kind of gave me a glimmer of what it really means to be a Christian and and Christians are not just forgiven sinners that that's just we are so much more than forgiven sinners and and as I began then to study what does it mean to be a Christian and what is God's plan for our eternity I became enthralled by it and so I started studying all the glory that awaits us in heaven forever uh, that we're going to actually be reigning with Christ forever. Our occupation is not to sit on a cloud and, and strum a harp and, and sing. Our occupation is to reign with Christ. In other words, we're going to be in charge. Uh, and I just began to study the glory that awaits us and the things that God has in store for us, and it was no less than life-changing. But then after a while, uh, I after some years of that, uh, that became my favorite teaching. Uh, topic to teach on. Of course, I had to teach on other things, but that was my favorite. Uh, as time went on, I thought, you know, I, I need to know, I'm, I'm curious where we came from. In other words, what is it like before one becomes a Christian, and what is our state? Uh, and D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher at Westminster Chapel, said, uh, he says, you know, most of our the Christians' troubles are due to a double failure. We fail, on the one hand, to understand the, the depths of our our sinfulness, and we fail, on the other hand, to understand the glory, the wonder that awaits us in heaven. So 
So anyway, as I started studying the depths of human sinfulness uh, and started studying specifically genocide, I spent years studying genocide. And honestly, as gross as that is, it's really was really helpful because every genocide researcher I know says that this is what average people do. Anyway, when I understood the depths of our human sinful condition, and then I understood the glory of where we were going to end up, uh, the problem of evil, and this, I realize some people are going to go, no, that can't even happen. This is, he's, you know, anyway, but whatever, I'm going to just tell my story. Uh, as that happened, the problem of evil largely went away. Uh, and what it took is, is as I said, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we need to understand the depths of human sinfulness and the glory, the wonder of our eternal future. And when you begin to understand those things, uh, the problem of evil may not completely go away. It's not like there weren't things that I needed to answer over the years. There were. Uh, it's just that the basic question got smaller because the basic plan then seemed like I, I got it. So anyway, so then somebody said, why don't you write a book? And I said, I'd love to. But that took, uh, I, at the time, I thought, okay, that'll be out in a couple years. Well, it took 23 years, but <laughs> anyway, so that's how I that's how I got into it. No, that that is that is incredible and then, you know, I went to a conference that you spoke at down in San Diego uh, right around the, I don't know, right before COVID hit. And you were, it was the first time I had heard you speak and you spoke on this subject. And I was like, man, I really got to buy that book. That, that, it looks like an excellent resource. And one of the things I noticed, and you mentioned this quite a bit, because so often people think, you know, well, people are good people. You know, mo- most people are good people. And then I'm reading through genocidal accounts <laughs> in this book, and you didn't shy away from that whatsoever. Yeah, that's true. You know, one of the things is is that I've found that I think a lot of people that write on the problem of evil, they will open up a book on genocide to find a particularly egregious example of genocide and go, and they'll put that in their book as an example that they think is something God needs to account for. They miss the it, but they miss the point. You need to read genocide long enough until as to his uh, historian and so- sociologist George Quinn and Leon Rappaport put it, the, you need to study it long enough until the ultimate truth reveals itself. Mm. And the ultimate truth is we are all capable of genocide, that we were all born Auschwitz-enabled. And so that's that's just... And, and you mentioned, you know, I'll, I'll, in teaching master's students in Christian apologetics, many of them come in and they will pay lip service to human evil because, of course, it's that's Christian doctrine not just 101, it's a Christian doctrine 100, you know, people aren't good. But many of them, i found, don't really believe it. And so what we have to do, uh, in, in talking a lot about genocide and illustrating it with genocide, uh, people go, wait a minute, I'm beginning to get it. Because if you, like I say, if you stay at genocide long enough, the ultimate truth reveals itself, and you realize sooner or later that genocide is human, that it's not inhuman monsters that do genocide, it's ordinary people like you and me. But people don't like that message, they hate that message, they want to label them as inhuman because they don't want to be associated with it, but it's the average person in a population, the ordinary person of a population that commits genocide. It's just just incredible, and you know, I, I had watched you on another interview as well, and uh, the interviewee asked you specifically about you know, what about those who don't believe in a historical Adam? So I think it's a, it was, I, I really liked your answer, very matter of fact with him. And I maybe, maybe a little bit, I can go into that, but also why is it that we suffer because of Adam's sin? 
Well, you know, yeah, I certainly do believe in historical Adam. Uh, as much as people are trying to move away from that, I think that's a dangerous movement because, you know, the Scripture in the New Testament talks about Adam as being a real person. Jesus is called the last Adam. It's hard to say that there was a last Adam if there wasn't a first Adam. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I think that's very important. But I'll tell you, the, why do we suffer for Adam's sin? And here's something we need to get a grips on. And 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 a lot of these things, by the way, um, Chad, I, I realize that are, are hard for people to get a hold of. Uh, but but uh, we are, in a sense, Adam. The trouble is, is that Adam and Eve, when, uh, after they fell. They, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then God cast them out of the Garden of Eden, removing them from the rejuvenating tr- um, tree of life. Uh, and then they reproduced. And so we are now all reproductions of Adam and Eve. In other words, we're a whole bunch of Adam and Eves. Uh, we have, and here's the trouble, we have their nature. We inherited Adam and Eve's fallen nature. Adam and Eve couldn't give birth to something, someone, a creature that was better than themselves. <laughs> they could only give birth to themselves. And so uh, we were all, we are all now born in a fallen state, and that's why we suffer for Adam and Eve's sin, because we are Adam and Eve. Now, I could go on and on, but, but you know, we don't have that much time. But, but that's the bottom line, is we're all a bunch of Adam and Eve's until, here's the words, we get born again. Mm-hmm. We need to get born again into a new family. Amen to that. And, you know, a lot of people will point out, they'll say, you know, well, that's, you know, you're talking about man-to-man sin and and wickedness, but there's also natural evils in the world, you know, earthquakes and so forth. So what is the origin of natural evil? Well, the origin of natural evil is, is, if you just go back, you know, take Genesis 3 seriously. If you really are a Christian and you go, you know what, I'm going to take that seriously. After Adam and Eve sinned, God the Lord did several things. Uh, one, uh, the Scripture says that he increased pain in childbearing, and I think that's uh, what's called a synecdoche, kind of summing up all of the kinds of trouble we, that, that women have with children. I think, you know, menstrual problems, uh, childbirth is more difficult than it was, and so on. And, and not only that, but, uh, you know, just family disorder. Then he said, your husband will rule over you. The marriage relationship was then changed uh, for the worse. It wasn't originally intended to be that way. But then he did something really dramatic. He said, uh, cursed is the ground because of you. Now think about it. What disease, what pestilence, what cancer, what COVID, there it is, what <laughs> disease cannot have sprung up from God looking at planet Earth and saying, I curse you. That's the origin of natural evil in our world. And by the way, and here's just something that's kind of important, very important, is and natural laws need to work in regular ways if our actions are going to mean anything. God could always be suspending natural laws, of course, but uh, then we would, that would be a cartoon world where God's always suspending natural law. Um, Natural laws work in regular ways, and we live in a land that was cursed, and, by the way, the fact that this, there's so much sickness, so much disease, earthquakes and tsunamis and, you know, and on and on, uh, cancers, the fact that this exists is actually for our benefit in the sense that we're not supposed to love this world. We're supposed to set our sights on the next world and to be in love with God. And even with all the problems that there are in this world, and as you know, there's uh, many, many problems in this world, even though there are, 
look at how easy it is to love this world. Could you imagine if, if he made it much easier? Uh, I mean, people wouldn't love him at all because they'd all be in love with their piggy little selves and doing their own things. <laughs> it's just incredible. And, you know, Dr. Clay Jones, who we're talking with today, the author of just a wonderful book that I think you guys really got to get a hold of, and it's called Why Does God Allow Evil? Pretty easy title to remember. It's a question that you would hear if you were sharing the gospel, and he gives you compelling answers for life's toughest questions, and he's given those right now, and you also have a, a, an incredible article, and this conversation just sprung up last night at my discipleship group specifically on this question because someone was wanting to share with their wife as well, and they were having problem with childhood cancer. And one oh, yeah. of the things that you bring out, and there's an article on the Christian Research Journal, I believe, and you talk about, like, at what point should babies be indestructible? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, by people, if, if, if they don't want to buy my book, uh, if they Google, why did God let that child die, they'll find that article in the Christian Research Journal. I reproduce that article in my book, uh, why does God allow evil? So they can get it from either source. I, you know, I mean, why God allows evil adds more context. And but anyway, yes, they can get it. You know, part of the thing is, and and this is back to natural laws need to work in regular ways. Uh, and when people say, well, why does God? Why see? They always want. I've never heard anyone ask, and I've been doing this a long time. I've never heard anybody ask, why does God let children die? Because that almost answers itself. Because it's like. Anyway, but what they'll ask is, why did God let Kaylee, six-year-old Kaylee, die of cancer? Or why did God let, you know, nine-year-old Brady be killed in a skateboard accident? Why did he do that? And when they, just to use Kaylee, they'll say, well, why did God let Kaylee die of cancer? I'll say, well, it's not just Kaylee, right? You don't think that other children should die of cancer either, do you? And they always go, no, of course not. I mean, 100%. No, of course other children shouldn't die of cancer. They'll say, well, it's not just cancer, right? You don't believe children should die of other diseases, do you? 100% of the time. No, no, of course, children shouldn't die of other diseases. I say, you don't think they ought to be maimed in car accidents, do you? No, of course they shouldn't be maimed in car accidents. Or you don't think they should be raped or murdered or, or um, mistreated or abused, do you? No, one, I mean, 100% of the time, of course. No, of course God shouldn't allow that. So finally I say, so to what age do you think children should be indestructible? At that, most people laugh. Uh, one person blurted out, 12. But that doesn't, that falls apart right away. You don't really think that, you know, it's all of a sudden, oh, it's okay if all those things happen to your 13-year-old. Not only that, what would the mechanism be for keeping children indestructible? How does God do that without interrupting natural laws millions of times every single day, uh, which then again, like I say, becomes a cartoon world. Billy could be cutting his steak at the table next to his little brother Bobby, and he could take his steak knife and jab it into Bobby's side, and God could immediately take turn the knife into rubber, and the whole family could laugh. That's a cartoon world. And so if you want God, the Lord to give, really give a real world where your actions really mean things, uh, well, that's the world we live in. Your actions mean things. Natural laws work in regular ways. Children are not indestructible. By the way, one last thing about children. I think the argument can be made, and I make the argument in my book, that at least there's a good, a good sense in Scripture that I think children are saved. Mm-hmm. I don't know to what age. I don't know, you know how that works. But I think that there's a good, you can make a case that children actually are saved. So anyway, that's, that, that's the comment on children. No, I think I think that's great, and, and I do believe that's one of the most important things uh, about this book. That's one of my favorite chapters 
And it was just, it, it really, it was profound for me. Something very simple and 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 so commonsensical, but very profound. I, I, re, I I'm telling you guys, please, if you're wondering about theodicy, how to answer the problem of evil, I am telling you, buy this book right here. You will be blessed by it. So, one of the questions as well, when it comes to the problem of evil, that you're going to hear over and over again, and this is something I've seen on blogs, this is something I've heard on the streets, even people inside of churches. But why do bad things happen to good people, Clay? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's one of my favorite questions. Uh, and that's, as we alluded a little bit earlier, uh, there are, well, first, there are no good people. And that's something that the Bible in Romans 3 is very clear about. Read Romans 3, uh, starting about verse 12. There is no one who does good, no, not one. They all alike have gone astray, their lips are full of cursing, their feet are swift to shed blood, and so on. Uh, you know, obviously the people are desperately sinful, is Christian doctrine, and by the way, Arminius and Calvin both agreed on that, so it's not like, because I think sometimes people go, oh, that sounds like Calvin, and I'm not a Calvinist, I'm an Arminius. i got news for you. Arminius agreed, uh, <laughs> yeah. said that without the work of the Holy Spirit, no one ever does anything good. But I find people, really, the average, this seems to some, a lot of people, this seems counterintuitive, uh, and so they struggle with it. No, 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 you can be a good non-Christian, and, and the answer is you can be an outwardly good non-Christian, but you can't be an inwardly good non-Christian. And genocide helps here, because once you realize that it's the average ordinary member of a population that does genocide, and every genocide researcher I know, to a person, there are no exceptions, and I've been reading genocide researchers for years, Every single one of them says that it's the average member of a population that c- commits genocide, as Christopher Browning put it in his book, uh, Ordinary Men, um, and, and, uh, which was on the final solution in Poland. He says, he says, you know, he concluded I could have been the killer or the evader. Both were human. Uh, and Alex, uh, Elie Wiesel, who himself was in Auschwitz, said, uh, spectator, perpetrator, victim, they're all, man is all three at once. Uh, but once you start to really read genocide and really understand it, it, it as opposed to uh, George Crane and Leon Rappaport said, where can one find an affirmative meaning in life? This affirms my worldview. People are not good. They need to be born again. Uh, that people, if it, if it will kill very easily. And look at, look at abortion. We are suctioning, scraping, and scalding to death over 800,000 babies a year in the United States. Who keeps that legal? It's your next-door neighbors, right? It's your coworkers. it's your friends, and frankly, it may be quite a few people listening to this program. Who keeps it legal? Who votes to keep it legal? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something desperately wrong with humankind, and so the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is wrong from the start. You don't have a chance at being a good person. It's hard enough to, be, to do God's will and to not sin when you're a Christian. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, that, that, that question, why do bad things happen to good people, is kind of wrong from the start. In fact, you've never heard, you know, you've never heard in your life, no one's ever heard, why did that bad thing happen to that bad person? Because nobody cares. <laughs> they don't care why bad things happen to bad people. Uh, but but uh, anyway, atheists, by the way, have to do what's called, we do theodicy, atheists have to do what's called anthropodicy. Uh, and that is the justification of man. They have to, in other words, say that humans are too good 
to deserve the suffering that they endure. Uh, and so that's why a lot of my book is actually when I go through genocide and the motives on why people do good and whatnot, um, a- answering uh, anthropotasy, which hardly anybody ever hears that term, and I'm a little sorry I brought it up. But anyway, I did. The cat's out of the bag. <laughs> no, that's great. I love that you brought it up. And, you know, I, th- I think if you dealt with the Odyssey, anybody who's gone to even conferences, I think the free will argument is one of the most common, but I, I think the best thing to ask is really what is free will before we can even get into an argument for free will. Yeah, you do. Uh, unfortunately, this is, well, in our day and age uh, where materialism has taken over, uh, people, you know, most atheists do not believe there's any such thing as free will, <clears throat> which is kind of self-refuting from the start, <laughs> because if there's no free will, then they're not able to look at the pros and cons of their being free will and come to an independent decision on it, uh, because society has caused them to come to that conclusion. The environment has caused them to come to that conclusion. They had no ability to decide whether it's right or wrong. But free will is the ability to do other than you do, very simply. Uh, and uh, I talk a lot. There's some. There's obviously people who read who define free will very differently in in the reform tradition, and I challenge that in my book. But free will is the ability to do other than you do. And here's something that a lot of people need to get their minds around: God cannot give creatures free will and not allow them to use their free will wrongly. Amen. That's as logical as it gets. You can't give a creature free will and not allow them to use it wrongly. And so here we are, a bunch of free will creatures running around and using our free will very badly. But see, this is important knowledge for the for all of eternity because it reveals to us the horror of what humans do without God. Excellent. So I guess the question would have to be, why is free will valuable? That is a big, you know, and uh, although I'd rather have you buy my book, but... <laughs> I reproduced this section. You can you can Google if you go if you go. I don't want to spend twelve dollars. <laughs> you can Google uh, sci-fi free will and the problem of evil, where I go through a lot of uh, free will became an interesting an interesting helper to me in answering the question that you just asked, Chad. Uh, uh, why is free will valuable? Because we every free will movie I know and and they. Science fiction loves free will movies. Uh, you know, I mean, the Terminator movies, the Matrix movies, those are about free will. Uh, and, and so often, by the way, the theme is, so humans create robot or computer. Computer gets free will. Uh, computer then decides to destroy creator, uh, and man, that is. And then man spends the rest of the movie trying, movies, as many of them, trying to kill uh, computer, destroy computer. And that's the Matrix movies, the Terminator movies, and there's a host of others that I list in my book. Um, that sounds an awful lot like God creates man, gives man free will, man rebels against God, in fact, even succeeds in killing God the Son. God's smarter than man is, though, and he figures a way to <laughs> turn it around. Uh, and so he makes it so that all those people who are very sinful can come to Jesus, who died for our sins, and they can be saved and have a right relationship with God and eternal life. But but we couldn't imagine. I mean, really, can you? We really don't want to be around creatures that don't have free will. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, um, you know, there's a movie they made a, a couple times called The Stepford Wives, where the men of Stepford decide they turn they turn their wives into like automatons. 
<laughs> nobody wants a nobody really wants a a, a robot spouse uh, every, because everybody realizes in their heart of hearts that a robot spouse is just three steps above inflatable. I mean, it's just dumb. <laughs> and uh, I mean, we want to be around real creatures who really do love us freely. And uh, by the way, if anybody wants to see a good free will movie, that's a little. There's some language at one part that's a little bad, but there's no nudity or sex in it. But uh, there's a movie out by HBO movie called Ruby Sparks that deals with this very nicely. Oh, very interesting. We, we, we knew we'd have a, a movie thrown out there to watch, as well as the book, Why Does God Allow Evil? I'm here once again with Dr. Clay Jones, and, and I'm just having a, I'm, I love this interview. I, I just love that you are very matter-of-fact and very concise, and it just seems too logical. And so... I, I think I think the next question dealing with free will, and this may be one that I, I know for me has come up at a number of Bible studies, and I'd love for you to speak to it. When it comes to free will, do you believe we'll actually have free will in heaven? Boy, that's to me that's a huge question, and uh, the answer to that is unequivocally yes. We will have free will in heaven. See, if if God's going to take away our free will in heaven so that we can't sin. The question arises immediately, well, why doesn't he take away our free will now mm-hmm. so that we can't sin? <laughs> What's the, oh, why are we going through all this death and pain and cancer and COVID and suffering? Why didn't he just take away our free will? Nobody will sin. We'll never, we won't be in this place right now. Why wait until heaven? Uh, I, the, I think that we're going to have uh, libertarian free will. We're going to have that in heaven. But then the question arises, why aren't we going to sin? In the book, I give seven reasons why we won't sin, but I'm just going to, you know, I don't have time to get, well, there will be no world, no flesh, there will be no devil, uh, the devil will be in hell, and hell will be an eternal reminder to free beings of the horror of rebellion. Uh, and, but here's perhaps one of the biggest, is, uh, and, and the reason I think we're enduring so much suffering here, uh, we are learning here the horror of rebellion against God. Mm. And I've asked audiences all the time, I said, would you like to see me jab a pen into my eye? And I'll stand up there with a pen near my eye and threaten to jab it into my eye. And the audience is a little bit like, what in the world is going on here? And I'll, I said, I could do it. I said, but you know what? I'm not going to do it. You know why I'm not going to jab this pen into my eye? Because I'm too smart for that. And that would be a very stupid thing to do. But we don't give pens to babies, do we? Why not? They jab it right in their eye. And I submit to you that we, you and I are learning here, and at the judgment is going to be a huge further education of the horror of rebellion against God. J.P. Moreland, my colleague J.P. Moreland, who's always a little more indelicate than I am, he likes the analogy, he says, how many of you want to get a spoon and go outside and on the lawn and find a chow down on a steaming pile of dog poop? Uh, it, see, he's, he's actually, there's exactly the same argument. Why? No, nobody does. Why not? Because that would be a stupid thing to do. But we don't let little crawly babies out near dog poop. Why not? Because they'll crawl right into it. Uh, In other words, but we're learning here, we're learning here that sin is stupid. And that's eternally valuable knowledge. That's knowledge that we'll take with us to all eternity, and we're learning that sin is stupid. Don't do it. Pay attention. And like I said, people go, the judgment, by the way, could be, I don't know how long the judgment's going to be. But let's suppose there's 7 billion people alive now. There's about 7 billion people that have been alive before now, depending on how you count. That's 14 billion people. If each of those 14 billion people are judged for 10 minutes, that's 266,000 years. Now, a student 
got mad at me. First time I said that, she says, you don't know how long the judgment's going to be. And I said, yeah, I know that. This is a thought experiment. I'm just trying to <laughs> let's think it through a little bit. Uh, the judgment could be a lot. You know, I think we go, yeah, the judgment's going to be over in 24 hours. No, probably not. Uh, I think the judgment is going to be quite an education for free beings Free creatures on the horror of rebellion, and that is what's going to be nece- one of the things that's necessary for us to go on uh, living in heaven and not sinning. There's other things I mentioned seven of them in my book, as I said, but uh, that's I think that's one of the biggest ones. We are talking once again with Dr. Clay Jones. Thank you so much, Dr. Clay Jones, for coming on the Good Fight Radio Show, and we thank you guys so much for listening. And God bless you. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show, brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.